Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And before we jump into things today, I do need to address a few common questions that have been popping up. One of them being, hey, is there going to be another series available besides Messianic Prophecies? And can you do more podcasts during the week? Well, I am glad you asked because it turns out there's only one of me and there's only one of Michael. So there's only so much we can do. <laughs> that is the short, easy answer. The other, the other reason being is we're actually in the process of preparing for our big trip, the marine biology trip in April. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's going out in April and we're accepting applications until February 28th. So if you're interested in that trip, go to evidenceforfaith.org 2022 marine biology or go to evidenceforfaith.org and click on the events tab. So a little promo aside there, uh, it turns out we've got a lot of stuff to prepare for it. Michael's actually speaking sometimes two or three times a week at different locations. And so after talking a little bit, the plan right now, the tentative plan right now is that we are just going to finish up Messianic Prophecies. And then we're going to call that the end of our season one. If there is time, and please pray for us so we don't get sick <laughs> and we don't run ourselves ragged. If there is time, we will try to include an archaeology themed uh, lesson to kind of alternate with Messianic Prophecies, but that is all going to be based on what our schedule allows. And then we're going to finish up our season one of the podcast and then tentatively either after marine biology or during mar marine biology, we will launch our season two of the podcast and there'll be a little bit more variety there as we build out our schedule. So um, that's kind of what's going on with podcasts right now. So we're going to finish up Messianic Prophecies, just hang in with, <laughs> with us for the next few weeks. Um, I believe we are just about halfway through based on the script Michael has given me. But most of you, if you've been listening, you know, Michael sometimes can go on some uh, very interesting uh, tangents and thoughts. So it's kind of a gamble to know how fast he's going through the script at the end of the day. So anyway, so we are in episode 10 of the Road to Emmaus, Mystic Prophecies of the Old Testament. So I'm going to uh, let you guys enjoy that. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast today. Welcome back to Evidence for Faith. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining me today as we go through another one of our lessons having to do with Messianic prophecies, our road to Emmaus, the Messianic, major Messianic prophecies of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And as we just finished in the last lesson talking about the, the Pentateuch, we just finished with Deuteronomy. As we're moving through, of course, we're, we're going in sequence. We started with Genesis and we're going all the way to Malachi. And so as we're going through this, um, we are now starting uh, the book of Joshua. And there's not a lot here as we're going to get into uh, this lesson itself. But as you, we've been going along, if you've been taking notes, that's great. I love that. Uh, hope you have your Bibles open if you're available. If you're driving a car or working machinery, that might not be the, the safest thing to do. But in any case, I'm glad you joined us today as we explore more about our wonderful Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, the Lord, and what the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, actually 
said about him that was written hundreds of years before he even came on our, what we celebrate as our Christmas morning. So as you know, we've been numbering these. We're on number 31. This is the 31st major prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament as we're going through this, the so number 31. And as I said, it's the, the book of Joshua. Now, unlike what we've been doing, in each one of the books, just taking a chapter and going through some verses. I'm just going to do this as a generalization for the book, because the book of um, the book of Hebrews that spends a, a good deal on the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. Um, Hebrews in the New Testament talks about this, but we also see something. You know, there's there's always this this correlation between Jesus and Moses, and even in the last lesson we talked about how people were expecting the Messiah to be similar to Moses, but the book of Joshua, yes, the book of Joshua highlights some distinct prophecies concerning the Messiah in the life of Joshua. Joshua is sort of, in a way, a precursor or a symbol of the Messiah. What do I mean by that? And it's it's a little confusing. I remember sitting one time and talking with some Bible uh uh, graduates right out of seminary, and we were talking about this, and um, we were talking about the how Moses is uh, a precursor or very similar, I guess I should say, very similar in symbolism to the Messiah. And then I, I said, well, what about Joshua? And they're like, well, we never heard anything about Joshua like that. And, oh, really? Well, and we sat and we just talked about this, but, and what we're going to see is like when one examines the life of Moses, true, one can easily see Moses as the law lawgiver. Matter of fact, he's sometimes referred to that as the lawgiver. Uh, God gave Moses the law he gave to the people at Mount Sinai. He actually ascends the mountain and receives the Ten Commandments and, and later is given more laws to bespo, uh, bestow upon the Israelites. So yes, it's very obvious to see in this way Moses is somewhat from, uh, similar to the Father God, the lawgiver. God led the Israelites, and Moses was his appointed leader and representative, the mediator, if you will. Uh, Moses' word in the, the Pentateuch uh, was law in many ways, similar to that of God the Father. But Moses didn't enter the promised land. He was removed from the picture, and at this point, a new leader is appointed, and that's Joshua. Now, let's examine Joshua and see what similarities exist, just briefly here, between him and the Messiah. So, first of all, number one, they have the same name. The Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, um, literally means Lord is salvation. That's what that means in the Hebrew language. And Jesus um, is the Greek interpretation of uh, Yeshua. And so, in English, we pronounce Jesus' name as Jesus. That's what we call him. And like it says in Matthew 1, 21, um, and I'm going to read this out of the Amplified Bible. Um, little twist here, because normally we've been doing the English Standard Bible, a word for word, but I want to get some meaning here. And so, I'm using the Amplified Bible, Matthew 1, 21, and she shall give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Lord is salvation for he will save his people from their sins. Or look at a different translation. Let's go to God's Word translation, the same passage, Matthew 121. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He saves. 
because he will save his people from their sins. So we see the meaning, the definition, if you will, of the, of the name Jesus. And Jesus is the Greek name, but in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And it's the same name for Joshua, as we would say it in English. Second point, they both bring the people of God to deliverance from God's enemy. Joshua brings the Israelites um, into battles, and oh my gosh, there's so many enemies that they face and stuff. Joshua leads the Israelites into victory in the promised land, and Jesus leads us into victory over Satan, sin, and death, which you can see very obviously, but if not, check Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. That's what Jesus leads us in victory over, over sin and death, because those two things are married together back in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Um, in other words, in this first, uh, the second point here, we're seeing that both Jesus and Joshua are commanders. They tr truly are. The third point, uh, they were both obedient to the one who sent them. Joshua was obedient to Moses, the lawgiver. Jesus was obedient to his father, who is also the lawgiver. So you see that one. Fourth, they both lead people into a promised land. This is probably the strongest one. They both lead people into a promised land. Joshua, of course, was into the, the Holy Land. Jesus, of course, is into heaven. But um, they both are leading into a promised land. Fifth point, they both perform miracles over nature. Now, Moses, of course, did some of these to a degree too, but Joshua also. Joshua commands the sun to stand still in chapter 10 uh, because of a battle. And Jesus performs the calming of the, the seas and the storm. Both of these are natural, um, natural science miracles is what we see. And the last one, number six, they were both threatened to be stoned to death. Joshua was actually threatened all the way back into Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 through 10. And let me just read that for you. This is Numbers 14, 6 through 10. This is the English Standard Version. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of uh, Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. Thus, they weren't stoned to death then. But you see, they're about to be stoned. And how many times do you read in, in the four Gospels, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus? Jesus was on numerous occasions also threatened to be stoned. So that's actually about it. Joshua, the book of Joshua is not really considered in a lot of circles to be a messianic, uh, major messianic book. There's some minor ones in there, but a major one. But I just love to point out that um, I, I love that that number four one where the, they both lead into the promised land. You know, uh, I just find that so fascinating. And then we are done with Joshua. That's all we're going to have on it. Uh, the book of Judges actually does not contain any major 
um, messianic prophecies. There's a couple of minor ones, but since this is a study on major prophecies, we're just gonna um, we're gonna go right over into the next book, which is Ruth. So this will be number 32. So if you're keeping score or, or tracking all of these, this is number 32, uh, and it's the entire book of Ruth. Basically, it's the kinsman redeemer. That's what we're calling this one, the kinsman redeemer. Now, this is a fascinating thing, and Ruth is a very, very important book. Uh, for one, it connects the, uh, the patriarchs of the Hebrew nation to the lineage of David um, during, now this is important to understand, this is during the time of the book of Judges. This is when this is taking place. So there's no king of Israel or anything. Um, it's the judges are ruling as Ruth. Uh, this, this four chapter short little love story unfolds. It's during this period of time. It was written during the period of the, um, or the events take place in the period of the judges. Actually, who wrote the book of Ruth, we're not sure. Most uh, Jewish scholars and Jewish traditions go back that it was Samuel who actually wrote it. Others um, take that it was David, since it was David's lineage talking about him, that David had it penned or had somebody appointed to pen. We, we really don't know. But traditionally, it's it's been always realized in most circles that it was Samuel. But anyway, that's what the connection is here. Ruth, um, in, in theology, it is, it is taking the patriarchs, the promise made to Abraham and his descendants. Then you get to Judah, you get to the 12 tribes, and it ties the 12 tribes to David is how this goes. So in this study on Messianic prophecies, we're going to see a few concepts that are important to note. For though the book of Ruth is not considered in most circles a major book of Messianic prophecies, it's not, um, but there, is, there are a few concepts that you find here that are noteworthy and one of them in particular, I consider to be a major prophecy. Um, I think it's very important. It's definitely noteworthy. So that's why we're gonna bring it into it. But I said, there's, there's three basic points. The first one uh, for the book of Ruth. And again, we don't have a real set passage or verse here in a lot of these things, but um, it's, it's the whole story itself in this four chapter book. <clears throat> and in the first one, it's the salvation from God comes to the Gentiles. That's the premise of what part of this book is about. Ruth is not Hebrew. She's a Moabite, not an Israelite. Actually, the Moabites were the enemies of the Israelites. Even so, she is going to be, if you've read this story, if, if not, I do encourage you, sit down, read the short, the short story. It'll take you less than 15 minutes, the average reader. It's a beautiful love story. It's really interesting um, how this, this is, is actually written. But um, in the story, there's a, a Hebrew um, of a, the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Rahab, who was at Jericho. Um, her son um, is, that lineage begins in this book here. And we come to this guy named Boaz is his name. And Boaz becomes one of the major players in here. And uh, she is redeemed because um, Ruth marries into the tribe of Judah and um, she then, uh, they're, they're living there in Moab and they come back um, after her husband and her father-in-law die and her brother-in-law die, Naomi and Ruth come back. And Naomi even tries to tell Ruth, stay back and worship your other gods, your idols and stuff. Yeah, great role model there, Naomi. But um, 
Ruth says, no, I'm going to follow you because I believe in the true God. So she does. But they come back and they're totally broke. They have nothing, absolutely nothing. They've lost everything when they were in Moab, a place that God had told them not to go. They went ahead and went, um, Naomi and her husband. Um, but now they've come back and they've come back to Bethlehem. And so uh, she ends up, they end up being redeemed. Instead of starving to death in total poverty, she's redeemed by this um, relative, Boaz, a descendant in the tribe of Judah, who is also in direct lineage to Jesus, which you read in Matthew chapter 1. Ruth is one of the three females that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, which is fascinating just in that point there, because many people um, often think that the Bible's constantly putting down women and stuff like this. Well, it was not God's design. Jesus is a great example of that, because um, he included women in his ministry and stuff. But anyway, that's what we often see with this. And we have Tamar and we have um, Rahab and we have uh, Ruth, three females that are in direct lineage. What's really interesting is Rahab was um, a Canaanite. She's not Hebrew, yet she's married into the Hebrew people. Um, and you have Ruth here, who was a Moabite, who also marries into the tribe of Judah. Both of them very interesting here, not that far apart um, in, in genealogies either. But that's the first thing that you come across right here in Ruth. Um, second, salvation from God comes to women as well to men. That's one thing you see here in this book. Salvation from God comes to women as well as to men. When Jesus was the Messiah, he, in particularly, tore down the barriers of centuries of women's suffrage that the Hebrew nation had put upon the people. It was not God's design, but they were looked down. Women were basically looked down upon in ancient um, ancient Israel during the periods of the kings and um, the chronic, uh, books of Chronicles and the period in between the Old Testament and New Testament. And yeah, there was a lot of sadness, uh, a lot of things that, that were not done by God's command that they were doing. And so... Um, Jesus, on the other hand, breaks this barrier totally because he includes women to travel with him and to learn from him, sit down as a student and sit and listen alongside men. He, he allowed this. Um, case in point, I can give you the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. When Jesus comes there, remember the story? Martha's going sort of fidgety about dinner. She's all concerned about dinner and she's upset because where's Mary? Mary's sitting there with the, the men and everything at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. And she comes, Martha comes up to Jesus, hey, get my, get my sister to tell, you know, get her to do some of this work too. And Jesus says, no, she's, what she's found is the right thing. Martha, cool your jets, calm down, girl. You're, you're, you're all concerned about the wrong things. Mary's found the right thing. I'm not going to take it away from her. So it's a beautiful story. It shows distinctly that Mary and Mary Magdalene, that's a great one. Um, is, well, that's another one. Mary Magdalene was a follower of Jesus. And Mary Magdalene um, supported Jesus. We, we don't know a lot. There's a lot of traditions that have human traditions that have come up about Mary Magdalene. All we can say is she was from the city of Magdala and she was probably very wealthy to be mentioned as Mary the Magdalene. And so... Um, she was a supporter, though, of Jesus that we're talked about. And, and uh, that's in Luke 8, 1 through 3. Also, there's another person that's mentioned, Joanna, um, who was also a supporter of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus had women supporting his ministry, obviously listening to him teaching and stuff. So um, Ruth 
is a female and she's the key player in this book. And so this is really interesting that we see that salvation, and that's what happens because she is dying in poverty. Boaz redeems her and um, salvation comes to her, um, a woman. It's, it's so cool. Third point, and this is the major one, has to do with Boaz. Now, Boaz in this book, this short little book, is going to be a symbol of the Messiah when he comes. Boaz is one of the few biblical characters which you will ever read in the Old Covenant of which nothing negative is ever recorded of him. Now, that is very rare because the Bible is often ex extremely transparent of even the heroes talking about the bad things that they do. I mean, we have Noah with the flood and then the story of Noah getting drunk afterwards. We have David and then David uh, sees this foxy chicky babe taking a bath one night and he, instead of being on the battlefield leading his troops, he stayed behind and he commits uh, adultery and actually murder and breaks every one of the command commandments with that one. Um, and then we, we see uh, other people you, you'll come across that even though they're great heroes and stuff, there's something that they, they've done wrong. Boaz, Boaz is different. As we read about this character of Boaz, he seems to be perfect. Now, we know he's not perfect because he's totally human. He sins and stuff, but they're not recorded here. Now, when this happens in the Bible, and there's a few other places where this happens with characters, when you come across a character in a Bible study, as you're doing it, who has, uh, he's a major player with nothing ever bad said about him, only good things, a lot of times what you're going to see is his life is a symbol of the coming Messiah. And Boaz is that. Another one, just to give you an example, is Daniel. Um, we'll study Daniel a little bit later on in this series, but Daniel's another one. There's not one negative thing ever said about Daniel. So that's what you see. Now, Boaz is referred to here as the kinsman redeemer, which is our whole topic here. Now, what is a kinsman redeemer? That's a great question. And it comes from Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. And um, this is after they've come back, Naomi and Ruth, they've come to Bethlehem. They're trying to exist. They don't have any food. And they go out. Uh, so Naomi sends Ruth out into the fields to gain grain, which they were allowed to pick according to um, the laws of the Torah. They could walk behind the, the, the gatherers of grain and pieces that they missed, they were allowed to keep. It was one of part of God's um, system for taking uh, for the poor, um, that they don't have to go hungry. And so we have that story taking place here in Ruth chapter 2. And Naomi says in verse 20, the man, it's talking about Boaz, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Wow. He's actually called the redeemer here. Now, normally in Christian circles, we refer to Jesus as the redeemer. So you can already see where we're going with this. The Hebrew word here, if you go back into like an interlinear Bible or the ancient manuscripts, the word for redeemer is the word gaal. And it means to redeem. Actually, that's what the word means. Uh, gaal means to redeem or, or to act as a kinsman, a close relative. Um, but this close relative has duties. Uh, going back into the Torah law, um, a close male relative, or uh, such as a brother, could redeem a family member uh, who is, say, in debt or 
uh, in slavery. They could buy them out of slavery. Or one of the laws was if um, a older brother dies and has no children, um, the younger brother can act as a kinsman redeemer and actually marry his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, and produce children to carry on his, his brother's name, the deceased's name. Um, and so that was part of the law. And there were other parts to this, other circumstances that are, are talked about in here. And they're, they're listed, if you want, I'm not going to read them all, but just to give you a couple, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 28, talk about this. Also, the same chapter, chapter 25, verses 47 through through 49, and not to mention the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, verses 5 through 10, give you circumstances where the, this uh, kinsman redeemer can come and, and help deliver this, this family member um, or marry them to produce children, or actually one of the things too they could do is they could avenge them in some way in certain cases, very specific type of cases. Um, and there are a couple of examples of this in the Bible being used, but none of them is clear or is drawn out as this one. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. So that's the key thing. And where we see this taking place a lot has to do with chapter four. Boaz has to, you know, uh, Ruth proposes to him, talk about Sadie Hawkins Day, she proposes him uh, to him saying, you, be, you should be my kinsman redeemer and, and help me and Naomi out of debt and everything. And uh, I, I don't have any children. You need to marry me and produce kids and stuff. And Boaz um, seems really happy about this. Uh, yeah, I'll do this. But he says, as the story goes, there's somebody who's closer related, who, in other words, has a place above me in the family line. He has the first right to this, so we have to go to him. Then Boaz does. In chapter four, he goes um, to this uh, unknown person, whoever it is, um, to do this. And we pick this up in chapter four, uh, where Boaz confronts him at the city gates. And as I say, this close relative, whoever he was, he's never named, um, was the first kinsman redeemer for Ruth, but he declines to do it. And that's in uh, verse or chapter four, verse six. It reads, then the redeemer, it's talking about this person, an unnamed person, relative. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Stop here. He's talking, the it sounds, oh, that's insulting. He's talking about not just Ruth, but the land and everything around there, all the property, because all that becomes a part of this. Going back, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption upon yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So there's the passage. This, this unnamed person would not redeem Ruth. And by not redeeming him, we, we don't know why. I mean, there's a lot of theories out there. I've heard a lot of sermons on this with pastors saying, well, he must have already been married and had children. It might mess up their inheritance. Um, there's, there's no evidence to support that whatsoever. All you can go on is what the word of God gives us. And he actually says, lest I impair my own inheritance. So was there some type of... Um, that was he putting up, I mean, it was his requirement by God to do this. Was he too into himself and his own wealth and his own living and stuff like this to fulfill the right? We don't know, but that's what it appears, in my opinion, from just reading the scripture, that's what we seem to get. Um, that uh, it, this unnamed relative also, it's very obvious, does not love Ruth. 
Boaz seems to be head over heels. I remember reading in one very, very old Jewish commentary on this uh, book many, many years ago that uh, talked about the story and it says that Boaz was unmarried and had no children. He was probably in his 40s when this is taking place. Ruth is maybe just out of her teens or right around the age of 20, something like that. Um, but the reason that this commentary, this really old Jewish commentary said that Boaz didn't have, even though he's very wealthy, I mean, a great catch, you know, uh, for monetary purposes and stuff and security, but it's said in here that he had the, had the face of a donkey. <laughs> so I just, just passing on what I read, that Boaz had the face of a donkey, thus he was not married. Well, here he's now got Ruth, who's interested in the kinsman redeemer thing that Naomi has obviously taught her because the Moabites didn't have this. And so she proposes marriage to him. Hey, I finally have a girl who's interested in me. Sure enough. Hey, I love you. And I don't know if that's the way it comes out or actually happened, but it sure seems like it could have been. That maybe he was just the most homely looking person on the planet. But in any case, um, he loves Ruth. No question about it. To him, Ruth is, you know, the apple of his eye. And he, from the first time he saw her when she was in the field, he took an instant interest in her. Um, so she, she must have had some uh, interesting and, and beautiful points about her, uh, some aesthetic beauty or something. Or I, I don't know, maybe he just like, man, I'm 40 years old. I still don't have a wife. Everybody's talking. My mom's really upset. I don't know. We're getting way beyond here. But also what's interesting about this is that the, the Moabites, had an extremely bad reputation to the Hebrews. I mean, the Moabites were, how do I say this nicely on a podcast? I guess I'll take as a student once told me, um, talking about a student who was um, in my class and was saying, don't, uh, said to me one day, Michael, be, be wary of that student, of this girl. And I remember asking, why do you say that? I thought, you know, you're friends with her. Oh, I am friends. I'm just looking out for you because she's as loose as a goose. And it was the first time I ever heard that. And I go, what do you mean? Um, sexually promiscuous is what she was talking about. The Moabites were pretty much like that. If you go back into the book of Numbers with Balaam, I mean, Moabites were famous for this. They were very much looked down. So in a way, in a way you might say too, this, the first kinsman redeemer who turns down Ruth, um, it might've been racism. I hate to say it, but it might've been. Instead we get what? The wealthy, the powerful Boaz fills the role to redeem Ruth and marries her out of love. I mean, how do you not like this story? This is great. Also, do you see how similar this is to the Messiah? He steps in as a brother to fallen man and redeems us out of what? Out of love out of love. And what's he do? He pays the atonement. Boaz paid the atonement for this. He had to buy it and had to, to, to purchase Ruth and the property and stuff. The Messiah, out of, a, um, out of love, pays our atonement. He bought us out of evil and, and our sins, and he brings us to an abundant new life with him. This is so symbolic of Ruth and Boaz. He married us also, if you catch this. Boaz marries Ruth. Christ, the Messiah, marries the church. As time goes on, we are, the church is called the bride. You see the imagery here? How beautiful this is? And I just love, it's all filled with love. How nice is that?
Well, that takes us to the end of Ruth, and let's go to the next prophecy then. Um, we're going to go through 1 Samuel, the next book here, and very quickly we're going to see in this one, there's not a whole lot in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but we will hit a couple here of major prophecies. So let me show you one of these. This will be number 33. We're in book of 1 Samuel, number 33. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. All right? And I'm calling this one Hannah's Prayer. Real simple, because that's what it's often called in many uh, study Bibles, Hannah's Prayer. Hannah, uh, the mother of Samuel, uh, she was barren for most of her life. And finally, God did, upon her prayer, grant her a child, which she dedicates and gives back to God. But when she gives birth and stuff, she sings this beautiful song, uh, a song praising God and prophesying about the coming Messiah. I mean, it's beautiful. I'll just read you a section of it here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Um, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So we start to see some key words here. We see the word Lord, we see the word King, we see the word anointed. Actually, this passage, this verse, verse 210 of 1 Samuel, says four things about the coming Messiah. Four things are found here. First, it says um, that God will crush his enemies because it says the adversaries will be broken in pieces. God crushes the adversaries. That's the first thing having to do with the Messiah. Um, and of course, the enemies. This, this started back in Genesis chapter 3. The enemy of God is sin and Satan and stuff. And Satan is, according to Genesis 3.15, will be crushed by the Messiah. So this fulfills that too. Second point we see in this passage, God will judge the whole world. Now, this is something that has not happened totally yet. This is a futuristic messi messianic prophecy. The third point, God will give strength to his anointed king, the anointed king. And the fourth one was, God will exalt his anointed. And by the way, the, the word for anointed is where we get the word Messiah. It's anointed is the word Mashiach in Hebrew, and that's the word for, that we translate into English as Messiah. So interesting. The term king, though, I want to go back to the third point here. The term king, as I told you, uh, Ruth takes place in the book of Judges. The beginning part of Samuel, 1 Samuel, they don't have a king. There are no kings in Israel. Um, they don't have a king. They have judges. Yet this specifically mentions a king. So, um, and at this time, since Israel didn't have one, um, Hannah is foretelling of a king to come. Now, some might sit there and think, oh, well, it's talking about David. Well, David never judged the whole world. Uh-uh. No, this is definitely talking about somebody different, uh, that this is going to be somebody who's going to be greatly exalted, as it says, because the word exalt the power of the anointed, um, that's right in there. So um, this part of this prophecy here has to do with future messianic prophecy, but um, three points... Um, in here we see right away is that um, that were fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming as the suffering Messiah. So that was 33. Let's go to number 34. Staying in the same book, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, and we're going to call this one the faithful priest. 
the faithful priest. Now, we've already talked a little bit about um, this priesthood of the Messiah. We've, we've mentioned that, and we're going to come back to it again with this prophecy, because the story here is a prediction of a future priest. Now, remember, this is written before Israel even had a king. This is during the period of the judges. This is taking place. Yet it's talking about a specific priest. Now, the Israelites already had priests. You know, they had the priests um, from the descendants of Levi and from Aaron and his descendants. You know, the Levites become Levites, but one tribe, descendants of Aaron, become the, the tribe of the priests. So they have priests already. And even back in Genesis, there was the priest of God, Melchizedek, that is mentioned and talked about during the time of Abraham. But let's look at this verse here. It's verse, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's verse 35, and it reads, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, this, this prediction of this future priest to come was a prophecy actually being made against the house of Eli, a descendant of, of um, Aaron, uh, who was the high priest at the time. It's, God is cursing him and making this, this statement. Um, for Eli's priestly line would end because he was not a very good person in, in a lot of ways. So who is this priest then? There's obviously a, a future priest coming because we're talking about the end of Eli. So who is this future priest being described? Well, four points I want to make here. First of all, is it Samuel? Samuel's going to be working there in, in the uh, tabernacle and stuff. He does become, in a way, Eli's successor because Eli dies on the same day. His two sons, the two priests that he had lined up for this position, they also die. And we see that Samuel sort of takes over things. But um, if you check Eli's successors, his lineage, his house, in other words, does not endure. But there's another important part that I don't believe this is talking about Samuel. Samuel was not a high priest. Samuel's not a descendant of, of Aaron. He's a descendant, if you open up and read the beginning of this book, he's from the descendant of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, not of Levi. So he can't function. He can function as a prophet. He can function as a judge, but he is not a priest. So it is not that. The most common answer that people generally will assume is the second one here, the second point. Zadok. Which Zadok? Because there's a number of them mentioned in the Bible. This is Zadok, uh, the high priest, during the time of David's rule. David had two high priests. Zadok was with him the longest, but he also, Zadok shared the priesthood with Abathar. Um, but Abathar lost his position because he joined a rebellion uh, later on against David, and David removes him from the priesthood. So Abathar's out of the picture. And Zadok, well, we know that he was a very honest and a very godly man. And there are some theologians, some commentaries that I read, um, have read that believe that this that he is the one being described here. But in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, there's a description here about Zadok, and it never calls him the faithful priest. He never gets that title. So I'm, I'm not sure that's the right one. Matter of fact, I don't think it is at all. A third possibility, some theologians believe that this phrase um, includes all the future priests collectively. 
and that every single one of them eventually being fulfilled by Jesus. Now, that's a popular thing in many commentaries also, that when uh, uh, God is cursing Eli, he's actually making a promise concerning all the priests. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of priests that were not very godlike in their actions at all. Some were just downright terrible. Um, getting in, during the time of, of Jeremiah and, and others. We had some priests that were really bad. I don't think that's the, the correct answer either. Now, I think number four, the fourth possibility, is the best one, and it has to be with Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. Well, I mean, what other answer so thoroughly fulfills this prophecy than Jesus the Messiah being the priest. And as we've already read back in Hebrews, we've talked about this in the book of Hebrews, Jesus for many chapters is described as the ultimate high priest. He is the best, the greatest of the high priests. And so I think that actually is an answer. So I believe this is a prophecy dealing with what you see in the book of, of uh, Hebrews, that that's what who this uh, this priest is going to be, that he is Jesus. He's our mediator now between uh, God the Father and ourselves. And let's go to the next book real quick here, um, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 2 does not have a whole lot dealing with the Messiah, but um, actually there's just one major messianic prophecy, and... Um, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's going to be verses 12 through 16. Now, this is the fifth, 35th, we're on number 35, um, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and I'm calling this the Oracle of Nathan, the Oracle of Nathan. Now, this familiar passage contains God's promise to David that his house and kingdom would continue forever. And I just want to read this, and then we'll, we'll be at the end of this lesson, this podcast today, and we'll pick up after this with another book. But um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to start reading at verse 12. And again, this is dealing with uh, a promise. God is, is talking directly through um, to David and telling him about a future event. So it's a prophecy. And we're going to read through verse 16. And this is speaking directly to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, but uh, uh, with the stripes of the sons of men." But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Very interesting passage here. In this, God promises David five things. Five things stand out right here about this. Number one, David's own son would follow him as king. And we know that's true because Solomon became the next king uh, that David approved. And so there you are. That part is fulfilled. Um, second point, David's son would build the temple. David wanted to build the temple. God says, no, you got too much blood in your hands uh, from all the battles. This guy will be your son who will be a king more of peace. He will build it. Um, and that's talked about in verse 13. David's son would build the temple. Now Solomon's temple was a place where God would dwell among his people. They would no longer use the tabernacle. They're now going to use the temple. But 
Jesus is a temple builder too. Solomon was a temple builder. The Messiah was a temple builder. For instance, let's go back to a passage we've already talked about in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 14, and it reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the word dwelt is the same word as tabernacle, so this is talking about the place of like worship and stuff and, and everything. Where, well, the main thing is, is where God will dwell with his people. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus refers to himself also as a temple. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus, it reads, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Of course, they took it literally. Jesus is speaking on a spiritual matter. And the third thing, God wants to dwell with his people. I mean, he, from the days of Moses, he wanted, to, he wanted to dwell in their midst. He desired from this time uh, to today, God wants to dwell in us. And in the time of Moses, God told Moses to make a dwelling place, the tabernacle, and they all camped around it, as we've already mentioned. And the tabernacle, as I said, the actual word is the same word for dwelling. In Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. We see this. This verse, though, is saying, let me tabernacle with them. Mm -hmm. The climax of this is yet to come. Uh, we, we will see that um, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And in Revelation 21, skip down to verse 22, you read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So what we're talking about here is not the physical structure of the temple today. The temple's gone. It was destroyed by uh, the Romans in 70 AD. But Jesus referred to the, um, the temple, even his body is a temple. Destroy this temple. He's talking about his body. And as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwelling in us. What was the function of the tabernacle and the temple? It was a place where God dwelt with the people. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit of God. I wish we would think about this more often. It might keep us away from sinning because we got the Holy Spirit of God actually indwelling in us. Yes, the house, the throne, the kingdom um, would be established forever, it says in this passage we talked about. And we, we read about this, that the, the house of David, the throne, and the kingdom of David would last forever. Psalm 89. Um, let's just look at a couple of verses here from Psalm 89, because this is, uh, again, we're going to come back to these in the future, so I'll just barely touch on them here. But Psalm 89, verse 29, God says, I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of heaven. So we're seeing that um, that the throne is going to last forever, his offspring forever. In, in Psalm, uh, same book, 89, verses 36 and 37, God tells us, his offspring shall endure forever. The Messiah's offspring, it's talking about the Messiah's reign. And uh, his throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. Uh, faithful witness in the skies. The kingdom that God started with David, the lineage here, the king, it goes on forever. Um, and so David's seed would be recognized as God's son. That's another thing we read about this thing. David's seed, the descendants of David, would be recognized in a way as God's son. In other words, it's saying, messianically now, that 
the Messiah will come directly from David. We've already talked about that. Um, and that's in Psalm 89, 26 and 27. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the king of kings of the earth. So the Messiah is going to be the king. And the fifth point that we saw in this passage, this Messianic prophecy, David's re descendants would receive redemption, well, I'm sorry, redemptive correction. Yes, it does say that. As it says again uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 14 through 15, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. In other words, when iniquity exists, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Even in these verses, it's talking about what? Flogging. Flogging. Floggings that the Messiah would endure. Basically, it's being said here that any chastisement for sin is going to fall upon the house of David and the Messiah, because the Messiah is going to come from there. I mean, this is so important if you think about this, because this, this, uh, these two verses here, 7, 14, and 15, actually take us back to Genesis chapter 3, 15, the curse after the first sin, where the Messiah is going to suffer. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, yes, but he will suffer. Isaiah even brings this out. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, we're going to see the Messiah is going to suffer. Because it reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The Messiah would be chastised for the sins of the people the suffering Messiah. Jesus uses this promise from Nathan. He actually uses this prophecy in Matthew. It's recorded by Matthew in Matthew 22, 42. When he asked the Pharisees, whose son will the Messiah be? They immediately say, well, he's going to be David's son. Matthew 22, 42 says, what do you think about the, about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Yeah. It's also in um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, the people responded that they know the Messiah will be from the line of David, because it reads, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Jesus was on some cases, in, in some circumstances, even addressed directly as the son of David, taking it from this messianic prophecy in 2 Samuel. Let me just read you a few of these, because um, it becomes so obvious. Matthew 9, 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. See, they're not saying Messiah. What are they doing? It's a messianic title they're attributing to him, because this is the Messiah. David's long dead. His descendants are long dead, uh, Solomon and stuff. Who are they talking about? It's a messianic title. And they catch it, these people. In Matthew 15, 22, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Wow, here it is again. How about Matthew chapter 20, verse 30? And behold, there were two blind men sitting on the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You see, people caught this. These aren't priests. These are normal people. Anyone, one of them was even a Canaanite woman. Uh, how about Matthew 20, uh, 21, verse 9? And uh, yeah, this is the, the Palm Sunday thing. Um, 20, uh, chapter 21, verses 9, and I'm also going to read verse 15. 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And in verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. People caught that this prophecy, they understood this prophecy. You might have a little difficulty in understanding 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, 12 through 16. But the thing is, these people all understood this, and, and it's, it's so prominent throughout the, the New Testament. You know, some just not in the Gospels. Even Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Or again, Paul makes a comment about it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. In fact, there's many other verses we could go through proving that Jesus was the Messiah, that this is messianic, that he came, the Messiah would come from the line of David. Uh, if you want to look up some more, I'll give you a couple more here. Uh, we're not going to take the time to, to read them because we're, we're out of time here, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. You can read chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. You'll see it again in Mark 12, verse 35. You'll read it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. In Revelation 22, uh, verse 6. And, and there's more. The one thing that is reassuring to us is that God does not break his promises. The Messiah will be of the son of David. That's one of the titles. Matter of fact, even in some of our hymns that we sing, he's called the son of David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and God doesn't break his promises. No matter how bad David's descendants were, God did not break his promises. God can't break his promises. It goes against his own character. He can't, which is a major theme of the Old Testament itself. But that takes us to the end of this session, and I hope you've enjoyed this and, and uh, maybe stirred some neurons in your head and getting you to pump some, some neuron juice through there to help you, you know, a little action potential, getting some ideas flowing and making connections that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah. And I love how these prophecies all just point to him. So the next time we're together, we're going to be going into the book of Job. The book of Job is our next book we're going to look at, um, and we'll look at it briefly for a few things, but there are some fascinating things as we're going to come about in that one. Hope you're enjoying this series, and again, check out some of the other things on our Evidence for Faith website. We'd love to, to hear from you. We would love to, um, if you wanted to join our ministry and helping support us, because we do things for free. Um, I go out traveling and speaking. We do not charge uh, a fee for my Bible teaching out in the fields or at churches, at schools, universities. I do it for free. We just ask for a love offering if it's available. If not, um, that's fine. We, we just ask that you cover our travel expense, um, you know, food, lodging, gas, if I'm, or whatever method of transportation we have to use. Cover that, but for a charge for us doing some uh, speaking and teaching, no, I, I do not charge for that. I will not charge someone to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. God gave it to us for free. It's free gift from God. I am not going to charge people for the gospel. Instead, I'm relying upon God and praying that God brings people into our ministry that will support us to make it that we can continue this ministry by allowing me to go and do these things, pay the staff, pay for equipment and stuff, totally without having to charge. I do not want to charge for the gospel. That just goes against 
against my grain. I just, I don't like that. But if you do, if God puts it upon your heart to uh, support us, we would love that. You can go to our webpage and, and click on a link for information on that. But, uh, or just to let us know. Love to hear comments. And until I guess we meet again, uh, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.